Well, good morning. I hope you're doing well this Lord's Day. If you're just visiting with us, um, we've been going through the minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. Last week, Pastor Tom took us through the first minor prophet, Hosea, and today we're going to take a look at Joel. And I've really grown to love this book as uh, I've been researching it over the past week. I was, whoa. <laughs> Can I keep going? All right. It's a good thing that God's word doesn't depend on technology. Amen. So I was so engrossed in the text. And you know, the book of Joel talks about a locust plague. So I was reading chapter one, which talks about that. And I was just so sucked into it. And I felt my leg brush up against something. And I'm like, whoa, what's that? <laughs> a plague of locusts has come upon me. But I've just really been enjoying this book. There's so much rhyme and poetic structure to it. There's echoes, foreshadowings, and it just is interwoven together so masterfully. And we all know that the Holy Spirit is behind that. And so I hope that you get as much out of this book as I did this past week. So um, Tim Keller sums up the message of Joel uh, very much. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in, and of us, in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Now this book, it's only three chapters long, but there's so much that we just don't have the time to cover in one sermon. But what Tim Keller said here, I believe is the heart behind the book of Joel. And my prayer is that what he just said here will be made more clear and obvious to your minds and hearts as we get through this book of Joel. So before we dive into the text, there are three things that we need to know about the book of Joel. The first is that the date is unknown. Scholars don't agree on when the book of Joel was written. People have thrown out different dates that span hundreds of years. I tend to think that it was written more around the time of post-Ezra and Nehemiah, after the, the Jews had returned to their homeland from Persia, but we really have no way of knowing. But for what we're looking at, we, it's not important, so we're not going to stress out about that. The second thing is that nothing is known about Joel the man. I mean, we don't know if he was married. We don't know if he had kids. We don't know if he rooted for UNC or Duke. Like, we have no, no knowledge about him. The only thing we know about him is that he was a prophet and he was the son of Bethuel. Other than that, he's not mentioned anywhere else in scripture, aside from being quoted, but nothing about who he was as a person. And then the third thing is that though this book, like the other minor prophet books, deal with sin and judgment, the actual sin is left unspecified. Joel is silent on what that sin was. And we're going to talk about that more here later on. But with all the ambiguities and the unknowns that are in the book of Joel, I believe that Joel is spurring us on to, to focus on the character of God rather than on human actions. And there are other books of the Bible that do call us to focus more on the, spe on the specific things that we do as human beings. But this especially gives us a good look into the heart and the character of God. And so that's where our focus is going to be this morning. So if you'll turn with me 
to the book of Joel, just right after Hosea. And so when we, when we get to chapter 1, we find a land that has been ravaged by locusts. This locust plague has come through and eaten up everything. It's described as being a plague unlike anything that they had ever seen in the land. He opens up chapter 1 by urging them to, to tell this to the future generations. This is a big deal, and we can't afford to forget what has happened to our land. Hear what he says in uh, verse 4. What the locust swarm has left, the great lo- locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. So I think he's trying to say that there's nothing left. They've eaten it all. And to give you an idea of what we're working with here, um, I also did some research on not just the book of Joel, but on locusts and locust swarms. And I found some very interesting things, and we should have some pictures. Yeah, there's some pictures right there. Did you know that locust swarms can cover up to 460 square miles with 40 to 80 million locusts in just half a square mile? And so you can kind of think of them as one big organism, like a cloud that's just like that that you see right there, that's flying, that's hopping, that's eating through plants and grain. They are even eating each other. They're mating, they're laying eggs. And one locust can lay up to almost 400 eggs each. They've been known to travel great distances. I read of one that traveled from Northwest Africa all the way up to Great Britain, and another one that traveled all the way from West Africa to the Caribbean. And a locust can eat its entire body weight. And so it's been recorded that some of the devastation has gone up to 423 million pounds of vegetation eaten by locusts alone. So this is no small pest infestation that we're trifling with here. This is some serious things. And whenever we read the biblical description of these locusts, we find that it's very consistent, or that we find that the scientific findings are very consistent with what we see in Scripture. It says, It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. And so whenever we think of a locust plague, it's probably not Joel that comes to mind, but rather the plagues in Exodus. You remember the 10 plagues that came whenever Pharaoh refused to let the Hebrew slaves go, and so then God sends all these 10 plagues, the eighth of which is this plague of locusts that eats up all their crops. But now, in a twist of irony, it's not the sin of Egypt that brings this plague upon them, but rather the sin of Israel. And so we see how it's affected every part of their lives. And Joel goes on to address different groups of people, starting with what he calls the drunkards. 
Not so much calling out the sin of drunkenness, but just saying, you who like to drink wine and feast and be merry and party, well, the party's over because the locusts have eaten all the grapes. He addresses the farmers, that their, their livelihood has been affected. Even the animals are in suffering because their crops have all been decimated. And then he addresses the priests. So if you'll look at uh, verse 13, he says, Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. So you can see that it's affected every part of their lives, right down to their very way of worship. Now they are unable to come up with these sacrifices that's required of them because their sin has caused it all to be consumed. And in the same way, whenever we allow sin to come into our lives, it goes and affects every part of our lives, right down to our very worship. Our worship becomes impeded whenever sin enters the picture, and it keeps us from worshiping, from loving God. Sin is a serious thing. And so this begs the question, what sin could they have done to warrant such a harsh judgment? And like I said before, the sin is not mentioned. But that doesn't really matter. Because when you boil it down, it all comes down to the failure to love God. Whenever we fail to love God, that opens the door for all kinds of sin, all kinds of evil. Whenever we failed to love God, we failed. And this nation might have looked good in comparison to their ancestors or their neighbors. And there's some places in this, in this book that hint to that. But just the very failure to love God is reason enough to warrant judgment. I don't care what we've done, whether it's something that no one would bat an eye on or something that would shock people. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of, of God and are all the same, worthy of judgment, because the smallest, sin, the smallest sin is putrid next to the holiness of God. So it's the failure to love God. And so at this point... The people of Israel might be like, well, things can't get any worse. We're just going to have to wait for everything to turn green again. But Joel tells us in chapter 2 that, in fact, things can get worse, and they will. He opens up the passage by, by saying, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. And when that trumpet was blown, that meant an enemy invasion was coming. It was like saying, red alert. Call everyone to arms. Brace yourselves for this impending invasion. And this is going to be an actual army, not just a plague of locusts that is coming through, but a real army that's going to make the locust plague seem like a mere pest problem. But now this is serious business. This is something that he calls the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that we're going to see throughout this passage. And you'll, you'll see that phrase or that term in other minor prophet books and in other Old Testament, but especially we find it in Joel. And the day of the Lord refers to the judgment of God against sin. 
And so the thing about locust plagues, it's bad and all, but it's not like these locusts are evil creatures with the intention of destroying God's people. Studies have shown that these locust swarms are are started because of panic and confusion. And so then they act on instinct and just eat everything around them. And if anything, you'll be left over with dead locusts on the ground to snack on after it's all said and done. Lunch, anyone? But not so much here, because we have this army that is united in its resolve. This army has every intention of unleashing brutality on God's people. They are united in their hatred of God's people, and they are out to destroy them. It's like that old heavy metal song that says, seek and destroy. That's what what these people are trying to do against God's people. By the way, this first part of of the passage is so metal. Some Christian metal band needs to come and make this into a song. But that's beside the point. Listen to the descriptions of this army. It's described as being an army unlike anything ever seen before, nor ever will be in ages to come. It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountain. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, a fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them is like the land of the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire, consuming stubble like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, Nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. And so imagine that, uh, you ever see that movie, The Two Towers, the second Lord of the Rings movie? If you haven't, I'd like to pray for you after the service. But there's a scene there where the white wizard Saruman is up in his tower, and he has called these armies of orcs to come and help him fight against the fortress at Helm's Deep. And so I remember seeing this for the first time on the big screen. My jaw just dropped down into my popcorn when I just saw this huge army as far as the eye could see. And that's what I picture whenever I see this army, just hordes and hordes of warriors with the biggest firepower that anyone can imagine. And they are on their way to get God's people. But then there's a twist here. Because whenever you get to verse 11, it says, The Lord thunders at the head of his army. That's a bit unexpected. Why would God be leading these enemy forces against his own people? Then it goes on to say, the the day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? And here we got a glimpse into what we know as the wrath of God. And I just want to spend some time talking about the wrath of God because this is something that has long been controversial and misunderstood 
in the church and in the world for that matter. There are some that'll say, there is no such thing as the wrath of God. My God is only a God of love. And then there's many in mainstream evangelicalism who will affirm the wrath of God, but they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to preach on it, but they would rather focus on the more accessible qualities of God as to not turn off people. And then there's some others in other theological traditions where they have kind of an unhealthy fascination with the wrath of God to where they're more enthusiastic about his wrath and judgment upon people than on his mercy, loving kindness, and compassion. So I want to set some things straight about the wrath of God. And I'm going to say something that might shock you. So you guys ready? Hang with me here. Is that wrath is not an attribute of God. Wait a minute, what? Is God known to exert wrath at times? Yes, scripture says as much. The wrath of God exists, but it is not an attribute of God. Well, how can that be? It's because wrath is necessitated by sin. It is a right response to sin, to evil. But you see, before the dawn of creation, before the fall of man, there was no wrath of God in the picture because there was no sin in the picture. You see, the, see, wrath is not in God's nature. You could call God reluctantly wrathful. God has no pleasure in being wrathful and being, casting his judgment upon people. He gets no enjoyment or pleasure out of it. So why does he exert wrath? For example, my kids tend to know me as a a fun dad. I like to play with them and joke around with them. I like to make them chili dogs and take them out for ice cream and stuff. But let's just say that their lives were threatened. Then they would see a side of me that they wouldn't think of as being characteristic of me. I would be filled with anger, righteous anger, as I vehemently, aggressively defend them against whatever could threaten their lives. And both of these things this warm, loving affection, and this aggressive, angry defensiveness all derive from the same thing, and that is my love for them. And in the same way, the wrath of God is an extension of the love of God. You see, God would rather wound his people by his discipline than allow them to destroy themselves with their sin. You guys following me here? This is a form of God's love. It's not something that comes naturally to him. But I will tell you something that does come naturally to him. Joel tells us in verse 13, For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Praise God for that. There are times where he will be fighting us. We love that verse that says, if our God is for us, then who can be against us? And that's very true. But God is not going to back us up if we are living out in sin. He will fight against us. He will resist us because he loves us too much to just leave us to our own devices. But he is also a God of compassion, of mercy, of abounding love. 
I love what the commentator Charles Feinberg says. He says, God is always more willing to bless than to blast, to pardon than to punish, to win by love than to wound by lashing. This is his first choice, and praise God for that. And the people knew as much about the character of God. They knew this, all this about him. So then is the time for their response. God calls his people to return to him. And so then they respond in verses 12 through 17 by coming together. God says, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. So they call everyone together to weep, to fast, to mourn their sin, to lament. They call the old, the young, the men, the women, even the newlyweds who would normally be exempt from something like this. This is a serious thing. So they're calling everyone to come and collectively repent before the Lord. Joel isn't even including himself here as he is repenting alongside his people, seeking the mercy of the Lord. And there's a very striking verse that is said here when it says, rend your heart and not your garments. So what does he mean there? God is saying that he doesn't want merely outward signs of repentance. He doesn't merely want to see the show of fasting, of sackcloth and ashes, and all these ritualistic things. Those are good things as long as they're coming from the right place. But he wants a true, genuine repentance, a change of heart. Has anyone ever fasted before? I fasted for both spiritual and non-spiritual reasons. Uh, lately, I've been doing what's called intermittent fasting, where I don't eat after 6 o'clock, and I don't eat before 11 o'clock. So if you hear some funny noises, it's probably my stomach rumbling. But I feel those hunger pains whenever it comes close to 11 o'clock. In fact, I'm feeling them right now. <laughs> and we all know what that's like. Those pains remind us that we need food to sustain us. Well, we should be filled with pain to remind us that we need the sustenance of a holy God. We need to realize our need for him and despise the sin that's in us. A few years ago, uh, one of my kids, Lincoln, and I asked him if, he, if I could share the story. He told me it was okay. But you know the saying, curiosity killed the cat? Well, he's the curious cat in our family. And so he's in the kitchen one day, he's minding his own business, and he sees this jar of something that looks really yummy. And we've always told them, if you see something that's not yours, don't touch it. If you don't know what it is, don't touch it. Any parents ever have to tell your kids that, or am I the only one? And so he sees this, and it looks really yummy to him. And so he gets a spoon and digs in, and he thinks this is applesauce. It actually kind of looked like apple butter, so I can see why it looked very appetizing. But unbeknownst to him, this was pure fat. And so he sticks the spoon in there, and then he puts it in his mouth and swallows. And let's just say it didn't remain in his tummy for very long. <laughs> and he got sick. And so ever since then, he's been very wary about anything with fat in it. I'll be cooking some meat. Does it have any fat in it? Well, yeah, it does. It's got to have some fat in it, but I don't want it if it has fat. Buddy, it's okay. Just don't eat it, eat it by the spoonful. But he's just so, he's like, turn off himself to fat. 
And it's a cute and funny story and all, but that should be our reaction to sin. We should remember what that sin tasted like. We should remember what it did to us inside. And we should respond with, get that away from me. I don't want anything to do with sin. I remember what sin did to me, how it ruined me, how it kept me from God. So I don't want any part of this. If whatever sins in me right now, get it away from me. I don't want anything to do with it. It's like the prophet Isaiah in chapter six, whenever he beholds the holiness of God and says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. The sight of the holiness of God before us should shine upon us and reveal all the ways in which we have fallen short of his glory. It should pain us to know that there are things in our lives that are keeping us from him, that are keeping us from loving him, that are keeping us from worshiping him. We should be broken about all the ways that we are falling short of his glory and all the ways that we are failing to love him. This is not something that we should take lightly, no matter how big, no matter how small, it should break us. And it's not that we're supposed to feel bad, that we're supposed to regret, that we're supposed to beat ourselves up. That's not the end goal. But God wants a godly sorrow to arise in us that beckons us to love him again. Because whenever we love him, then we can truly obey him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So I urge you all, repent for the sin that you carry with you today. Because our God is gracious, merciful, abounding in love. So what's going to happen now? God's people have now repented. They've gotten their act together. Will God relent from the coming armies? Or will he follow through with it? We see the response in verse 18. He says, Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. And so we see here that he he directs the armies off course, each to opposite ends, and then they all drown and destroy themselves. And then he brings all the vegetation back and everything starts to grow again. And one of the most beautiful verses in this book is whenever he says this in uh, verse 25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. He's saying whatever damage that sin has done to this nation, I will repair it and restore it. And he continues to do that today. And so is this the happy ending of the book of Joel? Not by a long shot, because there is a greater judgment yet to come, one that makes this day of the Lord look like child's play. But another judgment is coming of global proportions, one that will forever decide the fate of the nations. But just as God has poured out salvation in this form, a political salvation, an agricultural salvation, and an economic salvation, he now offers a spiritual salvation, which is greater than anything that he has given to his people thus far. 
And we find that in Joel 2, verse 28. This is probably the most famous part of this book. It says, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so Joel is predicting the coming pouring out of the spirit that we see in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. You remember the disciples being in the upper room when the wind of the Holy Spirit came upon them. There were tongues of fire above their head. And then they started to speak in all these foreign tongues, speaking the gospel. And so all these people around them are hearing them. And they're like, well, these people must be drunk. By the way, if someone is drinking and they're accurately articulating the gospel in all these languages, I'm going to be like, where can I get some of that wine? But Peter is saying, no, we're not drunk. It's nine in the morning, which hopefully at nine at night, they're not getting drunk either. But he's saying, this is the explanation for that. And then he quotes this passage from Joel, but he makes two adjustments. In Joel's version, he says, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. But whenever Peter says it, he says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And he's saying, this is happening right here, right now. The Holy Spirit has come. And then at the very end, he says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes on, this is Joel, he goes on to make it more pointed at Jerusalem. But then whenever Peter says it, he says, and all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, period. And he stops here. So do you see what's going on? The salvation has come not only to God's initial people that we see here in the book of Joel, but it has expanded out to all the nations. God has opened up everyone to be able to access the Holy Spirit. This was the desire of Moses. Do you remember in the book of Numbers? Moses is overwhelmed with this responsibility that he has. And so then God brings these elders to come and to help him out. And he pours out his spirit on them in the tent of meeting. Well, two of those elders were outside the tent. And then they started to prophesy and work through the spirit. And Joshua sees that and he kind of thinks it to be a threat. And so he urges Moses, stop them. But then Moses says, I wish that all were prophets and that the Holy Spirit would come upon everyone. Well, now Moses' dream has been realized because the same Holy Spirit that came upon certain people through the Old Testament for certain purposes have now come upon all of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we have that same Spirit inside of us. All people, all nations, sons and daughters, old men, young men, even servants are all filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no hierarchy, hierarchy of believers, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, as we'll later see in the book of Galatians. There is no Jew or Gentile, slave nor, nor free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. We have all been joined to his kingdom, as Peter would later say when he calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
And it is this filling of the Holy Spirit that is going to save us from that final day of the Lord, which we see in chapter 3. So we're going to see the destruction of Israel's enemies. All these enemy nations that had mistreated them over the years, they're going to get the justice, the judgment that is coming to them. And then later, God is going to call upon his enemies to fight. It's like he dares them to come and fight against me. Come on, show me what you got. Hit me with your best shot. I dare you to. See what he says here, starting at verse 9 in chapter 3. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And that last statement means bring your weapons, but you're going to want to bring your farm tools and make them into makeshift weapons because you need all the weaponry that you can get your hands on if you're going to fight against me. And ironically, we see the opposite in, in Micah, like we'll see later on for another sermon, where he says, beat your swords into plowshares, saying that you don't need to fight anymore, so there's no need for weapons. Well, that time has not yet come, but now here is the time of the final battle, the final judgment, the final day of the Lord, in which the injustices against God's people will be avenged. And what he calls the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which isn't really a physical place, but means valley of judgment, which echoes King Jehoshaphat whenever God judged his enemies and put them all to death. We see the same thing that's going to happen on that final day of judgment. He also calls it the valley of decision. And this is a term that you might have heard for evangelistic type events. This is the valley of decision. Will you this day accept the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior? But that's not what we're talking about here. Because it is not man who's doing the deciding, but it is God. It is in these last days, in this battle, that God decides the final fates of all who would dare come against the Lord. And it can only be one place, that of eternal torment and destruction in hell. It's not something that's easy to talk about. But I'm not going to apologize for preaching what I know to be true, what God has revealed to us. These are serious things. But the good news is that the Lord upholds all of us who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he puts it so beautifully in verse 18. Then you will know that I, the Lord, your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill, Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the, the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. And then he triumphantly ends this book simply saying, the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord dwells the Lord reigns, the Lord lives, the Lord wins. So now what do we get from this book? We've gone through it. What do we get from it? I believe the most obvious thing is that now is the time to repent. 
We all come here bearing sin, bearing things that we're holding on to that are keeping us from loving and knowing God more. I would urge you to repent of your sin because nothing that you can hold on to can be a help to you in your walk with the Lord. Return to him. Some of you might be here and you've spent many years of regret. You've wasted years in sin and rebellion. And you look back upon that with hopelessness. Maybe you came to know the Lord later in life. And so you look back on your past with great regret and sorrow. But I want to echo what Joel said earlier, and that the years that the locusts, that sin has taken away, that he will give back to you. And it's not that he's going to give you those years back to your life, but that whatever damage sin did to you in your, in your life, he will compensate for that and enrich you with the power of the Holy Spirit and give you back what sin has taken away. I'm reminded of the thief on the cross who at the very end of his life, at the 11th hour, came to know Jesus, how he had wasted his life before. But think of all the people who have been hopeless, who have come to know the Lord through his story. God truly gave back what the locusts took away from him. And I heard a story this past week from a dear lady in our congregation that her grandson, who's a little boy, I think maybe eight or nine, something like that, he was video chatting with his grandfather on his deathbed, who was too weak to speak even, who had resisted the Lord for some time. But this little boy on, over the video says, Grandpa, would you like to accept Jesus into your heart? To which, with all the strength that his frail body could muster, he nodded his head and then went to go see the Lord this past Monday. It is not too late to repent. Do not wait until that valley of decision, for now is the time to repent. And then as we have repented individually, one-on-one -on -one with God, it is the time to repent as a body, to repent as Carrie Alliance Church, to repent of our gossip and our slander, of our bickering and our arguing, of our slothfulness. And it's not that I'm putting down our church because our church has done great things for the glory of God. But you know we haven't arrived. We can always use more of the Holy Spirit in our church. And I hope that we will receive more in the coming years. It's the time for the church in America to come together and repent of our sins. To repent of the racism that we have allowed in our nation. To repent of spectacle over scripture that we have allowed to penetrate our churches. To repent of all these sins consumerism and partiality, to repent of the lukewarm state in which our national church has been in. Because I've read about revivals and they all have one thing in common. They always start 
with repentance. Oh, how we would see revival if we would get on our knees, confess our sins, and cry out to God to take all the sin that's keeping me from you and fill me with your spirit. Make me love you. If we all did that individually, if we all did that as Cary Alliance Church, if we all did that in the triangle area, in this nation, we would see rampant revival spread. Because revival and sin don't mix. Revival starts with repentance and echoes that day of Pentecost that we look back on so fondly. Now is the time to repent. And I simply want to close echoing what I read from Tim Keller earlier on in the sermon. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, and we're going to do something a little bit different to close out this service. I'm going to invite us all together for a time of repentance and confession before the Lord. So we're going to take a few moments to confess our sins before God, to ask him for forgiveness and to change us from the inside out, to cry out, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And I'm going to repent right alongside of you as we come before the Lord together. And then after we've had a chance to do that, I will lead us in a corporate prayer of confession and repentance. And then the worship team will lead us in a last song of worship. Let's come before the Lord together. might be some of you this morning who have never even repented at all. If that's you, I would encourage you to get on your knees for the first time. Confess your sin, your inadequacy, and follow the Lord Jesus for the rest of your days. If that's you, I'd love to talk with you after the service. And now I will lead us in corporate confession and repentance.
Lord, we come before you as Cary Alliance Church and we confess that we have not always borne the best witness in every way that we have failed to be a witness unto you. Lord, would you forgive us? In every way that we have felt satisfied and not wanted to progress, Lord, would you forgive us for all the ways in which we have been allowed to be led by our flesh than by the Holy Spirit? Lord, have mercy on us and forgive us. Lord, we are a church made up of wonderful people, people you have truly blessed us with, with gifts, with powerful testimonies. And we praise you for the great things that you have done through our church. But yet we know that we are wounded. We are imperfect. We are desperately in need of your Holy Spirit. So fill us, Lord. Place us completely under the influence of the Holy Spirit and purge out anything that keeps us from knowing and loving you more and from reaching out to the lost. Lord, would you send revival? Pour out your Spirit on us, we pray. Amen.